are reflections of ourselves. Is the singularity near or is this just hype? This is episode 23 of Bear Minds. There's some public concern about robot apocalypses and mass automation, but how much of that is actually even possible? For this episode, I sat down with Professor Ken Goldberg to discern the fact from the fiction surrounding the recent hype train of artificial intelligence and robotics. Ken Goldberg is the chair of the Industrial Engineering Department at UC Berkeley, and he and his team have published over 170 papers on robotics and automation to date. Prior to his position at UC Berkeley, he's also founded a whole slew of other projects and companies, including the African Robotics Network. More information on that in the description. Anyway, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Ken Goldberg on artificial intelligence only on Bear Minds. Right, so I'm, I'm a big uh, skeptic about this uh, singularity. And, um, you know, I don't feel it's where we're at all uh imminent and it's uh it's a great exaggeration yeah so you believe that this idea of the singularity is a great exaggeration but why do you think what's the motivation for people to come out with this very publicly and try to push this idea on the public oh that's a great great question i i it's, it's actually very hard to know exactly i think that some of it is that it's very sensationalism and it's about um you know, getting attention. So I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it creates a buzz. People are very receptive to this kind of thing. And that goes all the way back to ancient fears about technology, go back to the ancient Greeks, and even really all the way to Adam and Eve. And so it, it plays into a very deep need of people to, to fear these uh, new technology that sort of exaggerate and fear it. So it fits a pattern. And I think that's, um, you know, it's a very powerful um, archetype, if you will. And what happens is that it gets triggered every few years when someone, you know, basically starts to talk about AI and its implication, and then everyone jumps to, you know, the conclusion that it's, a, that it's about to take over, you know, that, that humans will be, uh, you know, subservient or something to, uh, to machines. And the, the reality is we're very, very far from that. I see. So what, what do you think are the actual real threats that come from the progress that we're seeing that you don't think is getting enough attention? Well, I mean, there's all kinds of interesting challenges that are happening with technology. I mean, certainly just the single fact that technology is so compelling and so ever-present is an issue. It makes... Um, it, it limits our, our ability to get away from technology, to have more direct personal experiences and contact with each other. That's very important. And I worry about that because everybody's got their phone. They're constantly being distracted. They're constantly being tempted to check and look at, you know, get, get dopamine input from other devices. So um, what um, we're, we're trying to do is get... Um, you know, think about ways to take strategies that will get people to put all this in perspective, you know, take a break from it. And it's interesting because a lot of companies obviously have a very vested interest in keeping you glued to your screen and available 24 hours a day and uh, keeping up with your streaks and everything like that. And I think what happens is we're, you know, this is, this is 
not artificial intelligence, but it's just it's just technology that is that, that is so compelling, so exciting, and uh, so entertaining that it it just starts to absorb a huge amount of our attention. So aside from the attentional aspects, uh, you, you do believe that there is a great upside to be had from the development of technology. And you do believe that there are ways for humans to work together with machines in new ways. And this is part of your idea of this multiplicity. So uh, I want yeah. to ask, yeah. Well, let me, I'll, give, I'll give you an example. So, yeah. um, you know, about 30 years ago, almost, um, the first uh, spreadsheet came out. And it was, um, you know, it was a computer program that would, um, um, you know, allow you to fill out cells on a matrix, right? And so it was uh, like like an accounting spreadsheet, but um, it was this digital. So it was, uh, you know, you're familiar, you use this all the time. Excel is an example, right? Mm-hmm. So when that first came out, there was a huge um, sense that um, there will be no more accountants. Hmm. That we we just wouldn't need accountants anymore, and um, in fact, a lot of business jobs would just disappear because now we had this new tool. Well, the answer is that didn't happen at all. In fact, we have probably more accountants, more business people than we had then. And the answer is that what we we, however, their jobs are much more effective than they were uh, before the spreadsheet. So the spreadsheet has the same, very similar to what people are talking about with AI. They talk about it as though it's going to replace, but in fact, it's going to be a tool. It's going to be a way to enhance the, the, the human workers. So just as the spreadsheet made it much easier to prepare numbers, make corrections, check numbers, envision changes, right? all those things were made, it, uh, made an accountant's job actually more valuable mm-hmm. than less. And so, yes, you didn't need someone to sit down and, you know, a bookkeeper to write every little um, note and read and with a pencil and paper. But in fact, there was some great need to now look at different scenarios, change things around. You just, as you know, it's just like the, the whole idea of a spreadsheet can be used for all kinds of things, and it's used all the time. And so, you know, that, that became... And I think a perfect example of how no one calls that artificial intelligence because it was just following rules, but it was an example of a, of a technology that, um, that had dramatically positive influence on work, human work. So the ability for technology to augment our productivity, you think it'll just continue with what we call AI today, is just, just going to make us more productive and, and it's not going to replace workers necessarily. Exactly. So there were some jobs, some jobs, I believe, might go away. So a job like a toll booth operator, right? That was that's one where you know it's it there's there's really no future for toll booth operators. Same for elevator operators, right? Those mm-hmm. were there used to be people in every elevator operating it, mm-hmm. and um, you don't need those anymore, right? So there, there's definitely some things with technology will replace. I agree, and there there are many other examples in farms and other places, but. What you have is that new jobs get created and new opportunities open up. Now, it's hard to, it's hard to know that those things are, but the things that are, people are talking about now, like doctors, lawyers, journalists, teachers, those jobs are not going to go away. They are very essential. Right. I think a lot of the worry also comes from people where 
on Wall Street where traders are being replaced by the dozens by a single quantitative analyst that can actually do the data science. And whereas that actually gets rid of jobs, they're actually increasing the productivity of the overall firm. Well, yes and no. I think it's interesting because when um, a big part of being a stockbroker is like being a psychologist. You have to call clients, talk with them about business, talk with them about opportunities, build, um, you know, make sales essentially of stocks, right? Mm -hmm. And then when the stock market goes down, you have to call your clients and explain what's going on and why it's okay and why they're going to bounce back and not to panic. There's a huge amount of that hand-holding. And that's, that's really what I, I believe stockbrokers get paid for, ultimately. We all know that their ability to pick a stock is random. Mm -hmm. And so they are, what they make their money is this huge amount of, uh, of hand-holding. And that's not going to go away. That you cannot automate that. So that aspect of their jobs, they'll actually have more time for that. And less time they will expand to put in rows of numbers, which you know has dubious value anyway. So you know, the the idea that, that you just have a vast number of quants back there just crunching numbers all the time, that that's not really true. You you have the vast majority of those employees are actually doing things like um, much more social and psychological interactions. I see. So in terms of, uh, as, as the technology develops, do you think there are certain safety measures that ought to be taken either from a regulatory or other angle to ensure that the progress is, is progressive rather than destructive? Well, you know, I do. I think it's wise to keep our eyes open. And I think that... You know, certainly there, there's all kinds of problems where, where machines can be badly designed or make mistakes. And it's often human error, as we know. In some way, the human has, you know, failed to account for something like this recent thing we just saw in Hawaii where the warning system went out to every Hawaiian saying that there was an imminent missile, you know, attack. And it was just a mistake. It was human error. And moreover, it was a specific mistake because they didn't plan any retraction method. So they, once they launched that message, mm. they couldn't pull it back. And they had no way of sending a, a follow-up message to cancel it. So well, this is a perfect example, right? They have this all the time. Yeah. People make mistakes. And they, the machines are designed in some way that they just follow the rules. And they, if the rules are incorrect, then the rules, they will make the same mistake. What I think we... we we try our best to ensure against that. So we, we try to verify systems. We try to check them. We try to do all kinds of um, um, quality assurance that is meant to make sure that our, our, our all of our systems, whether it's an automobile or an airplane or a big piece of software, will work reliably with very, very changing conditions. And one big factor is you have to add in now with the internet is that you also have the ability for, for hostile adversarial agents to come in and actively try to break your system. And any system has some vulnerability given a sufficiently sophisticated attacker. So you have to be thinking all the time about how will you detect an attack, how will you respond to an attack, how will you, uh, how will you do your best to, to limit the ability of attackers to come in, etc. So this is true for all all software systems, all digital systems. What I think 
is 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 you know with with AI based systems, AI like for example automated trading is a perfect example where um we've already seen examples where you have a large number of systems they all start to get into uh, an echo chamber where they all start to trigger sales at the same time and it just cascades and you get this really huge drop or spike in the market, right? Mm-hmm. So those are the result of coupling effects between systems. Those are very hard to anticipate and guard against. So, you know, it sounds good to say we need to protect everyone. I think it goes without saying that we want our systems to be as uh, reliable and predictable as possible. But at the same time, it's it's very difficult to do that. Do you think enough is being done at this point? And how, how, how are people coordinating across different cultures and uh, political and business interests, as you said, to, to make sure that this is all very beneficial overall for humanity as a whole, rather than competing and, and being destructive? Oh, well, I think there's a lot of um, efforts going on. Every individual company is trying to ensure itself or protect itself. I think that much more can be done across companies and internationally to come up with standards for example. I'm not opposed to something like a treaty that would say don't use um, autonomous weapons. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. Um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to draw the line. Where where do you draw the line? Um, Landmines are to some degree autonomous weapons. Right? Right. They, um, they're, they just trigger on sensory input. So they're very simple, but I think it's true that if you get sophisticated drones that can go in and um, make identifications and make decisions, you'll have a lot of, of, of false positives and there'll, there'll, there'll be a lot of accidents. We have this even with humans in the loop, of course. Right, and, and this development has already been going on and it seems... It seems there's not much uh, that's been happening in terms of uh, a, a treaty for, well, as much as that something that can be enforceable uh, to stop or halt or alter the direction of this development, as there are other threats that we seem to be uh, we seem to need to address with this potentially bigger threat.
understand that. We don't know how to predict that. So it's going to be many years before we have something that's able to understand the nuances of a conversation, understand the tone of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then be able to really, you know, you make inferences about what's going on. I mean, the Turing test, right? It's mm-hmm. been around for a long time. We're not, we're not even close to being it. No machine is even close to being able to pass that. So do you, you, mentioned game, you mentioned the game of Go. Yeah. And, um, and the uh, um, poker. Yeah. Um, I think poker is more interesting than Go, but either way, they're both games. You have to understand, those are, those are interesting, but they're also... They're also what you might call perfect information models. So you know what's going on. Well, actually a little less so with poker, right? You don't know, you're not fully observed. But the idea is that you have a very well-defined reward function. It's very clear what you're trying to achieve. And you can look at, actually, there's lots and lots of data because you can look at all these past games. So you can learn from patterns of those. So that's that's those are those are interesting. They're very, um, I would have to say, I do consider those some forms of breakthrough. But they do not. You can't extrapolate from that to say suddenly, you know, since we can beat the best go player in the world, now we can just write the best novel in the world. So you think this rate of progress that there's a there's a fallacy in thinking that this exponential progress is going to continue? Absolutely, the the, the exponential fallacy is, is, is huge. We've had this with Moore's Law, and some people call it Moore's Curse because of this, because Moore was successful in this prediction, but it was a extremely surprising. And in fact, if you know what exponential means, that kind of doubling, it cannot continue uh, for very long. It's, mm-hmm. It has to stop, uh, it has to level off. It just can't, because it grows so large. So, you have few exceptions, Moore's Law being one of them, and Moore's Law, like most, will taper off, you know, as you get, as you get closer to atomic scale limits. But you cannot, um, you know, this idea that Ray Kurzweil and others claim that, that all technologies are exponential is, is horrendously false. All right. Um, so as we uh, wrap off here, I just want to go t- take a step back. You, you have come from rather humble beginnings. You were born in Nigeria. And I, I want to ask, what got you interested in robotics and AI in the first place? My father was an engineer. And he, we used to build rockets and go-karts. And then he had a, a company and he wanted to build a robot to uh, help him avoid uh, dangerous chemicals. And so he started building a robot when I was just a kid. I was about eight or nine. And I used to sit with him and we started, I started learning about binary numbers and about how computers work and I got very interested in that. And I also watched a lot of, you know, shows when I was a kid about Star, not Star Wars at that time, but it was like Lost in Space with robots. So I've always been interested in the idea of uh, this most complex machine and what you could, what it could achieve. And as I've studied them now for 50 years, I've started to really appreciate that that robots robots expose or they reveal 
the remarkable qualities of human beings. And what is that? Because humans are, are very adaptable. We have ability to learn from very few examples. We can make inferences. We can, we can judge very complex, subtle cues from other humans. We can read situations. We can adapt to new things. And, and we can communicate in very, very subtle ways. So hum, humans are, are and, and if you look at, watch a human um, in a kitchen, picking up things and juggling, you know, imagine cleaning up, uh, a, look at a busboy cleaning up with a pick up six, six plates and uh, napkins and silverware and a bunch of glasses and, and walk away with like 30 items. And it's just a, it's a miracle. No, it's, it's amazing what they're able to do. But as always thank you so much for your listening i hope you enjoyed this episode until next time take it easy my name is yj your host for this episode see ya bear minds is a podcast dedicated to featuring uc berkeley professors researchers entrepreneurs political activists you name it I started this podcast as a platform to have more dialogue concerning difficult topics after the Milo protests on campus, and now we're expanding, so check us out on BearMindsPodcast.com to see how you can get involved.